Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Right. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with David Brown. Uh, it's April 7th, 2022. We're at David's home in Wilsonville. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get us started is why wine? Yeah, you know, before we dive into that, I want to thank you for taking the time to come interview me and also thank the Linfield program. It was really a, a wise move, I think, to create the uh, video archive and have that record of the industry and so you know just want to give a shout out to whoever's behind that we appreciate that thank you so much and also to to your work um so why wine it's a it's a fascinating question isn't it you know if you look at um people as they come through college and the number of people that actually graduate in the degree that they start in the numbers are very low, and then actually the people that are working in the field mm-hmm. uh, that they graduated in is very low. So uh, it, it's interesting, the, all the different crossroads and foundational elements that lead us to our, our destination. Uh, for me, it, it started very young in life. My uh, father's business, Mitchell Lewis, uh, was in an agricultural supplier. And so I grew up uh, bouncing around in the front seat of a pickup truck with my dad out at uh, looking at agricultural operations and just became really inspired by that. If you, the diversity of agriculture in the Northwest and a well-run farming operation is just such a, I thought it was such a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, orchards up in Yakima and hops over at Moxie and uh, the, the row crops that were here in the valley and weed harvest up in the Palouse. It was all just uh, beautiful. And then also the, um, the opportunity to be a steward of the land. I've got a real affinity for property and being able to manage property and uh, enhance it, develop it, and have it reach its full potential and, and also uh, have a, an eye on the aesthetics of that mm-hmm. is, is really very rewarding for me. So you start with that, that base of a real uh, in, inspiration of agriculture. And then um, secondarily, my, my dad's business was down in lower southeast Portland, the central east side. And uh, that neighborhood was really entrepreneurial and uh, very all the cycles of life existed there. And you know, post-World War II, there was a really strong sense of community and a lot of hope and optimism. And so I'm super fortunate. I grew up thinking that everything was possible, right? <laughs> Where uh, if, you, if you look at the demographics, there's, there's not a lot of people that, um, that get to have that experience. And there were all these interesting businesses that were around. And, had friends that were in the produce business, and so I was around that, and to see all the different crops that would come in at different times of the year, and the the Portland wholesale flower market was down in Lower Southeast, and got to be in and around that, and you just get 
connected to these cycles of life. Mm -hmm. And it was really uh, uh, very uh, impactful for me. And then also, um, you know, there were these businesses that were uh, doing these cool things. They, uh, we would do, my folks would host an end of season dinner each year. And they would do it at these old school Italian restaurants that were down in that neighborhood. And there was the sharing of a big meal at the end of the season. And wine was also always a part of that. And so you really start to see uh, wine as a, as a celebration and uh, for special occasions. And also uh, as people have done this hard work and the seasons come to the end and to get connected to those cycles was really um, an interesting thing for me. I think, I think that neighborhood and growing up in a business mm -hmm. was probably more impactful for me and more inspirational and shaped me more than almost anything that I've done. Uh, and then it was, it was had a foundation in agriculture. Mm -hmm. and, and so, um, you know, you get that layer going on. And then right across the street from my father's business was an old school wine distribution house, Roberti's House of Wines. And um, I just became really smitten with that. I would see these seagoing containers come in that had, had come from overseas. And that just became really fascinating to me. You know, add in all of the products that were available domestically, and you start to think globally, even as a young person, and that these products are coming from overseas. And, that just was was fascinating to me and I, I literally it's it's kind of cliche but i did my like seventh grade report of who, who what do you want to be when you grow up and i wanted to be in the wine business and uh, went over and, and interviewed the people at roberti's and, and looked at that and gave my presentation at my seventh grade class and and it it stuck with me i think i've um as i look back at my life it seems as though I'm drawn to projects that can be a lifelong pursuit. And wine and business became part of that array. Uh, so then you, you come forward. I went to school down at Oregon State and have a real um, love of science. I have a degree in, in science, and so you take a couple years of chemistry, you take general chemistry and you take um, organic chem and that enables you to take upper division science classes. So I took both life science classes and plant science classes. And uh, you know, you, you take plant physiology and plant propagation and uh, plant pathology and, and those were really, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a science bug. And then you get that kind of level of information and it just was really, uh, motivational for me. I knew at that time that, you know, I wanted to try and do something that was uh, involved with agriculture and involved with plants, and I've got a real affinity for that, and, and so it, it was more of these foundational elements that, that led me to wine. And, and I met uh, at school a couple guys, a couple of my good buddies who grew up in the Bay Area, and um, they, as as young people, they were going up to Napa. And they said, Dave, you've got to come see this, right? You've got to come down and, and go experience this. So picture probably 1980, 
and uh, we'd fly down to San Francisco and, and take one of their cars and go up to Napa and we'd, we'd go tasting, there were no tasting fees, we slept in the park and you know, and now what would that be? It'd be 40 plus years ago, right? <laughs> so then the bug really bites you, right? I, I've got this a agricultural foundation and um, you know, science background and then you start to see vineyards and it, it, it begins to materialize that somehow I'd like to, to be in this, in this business. And then when I, I got out of school, I I've also um, was fortunate, a, a buddy of mine was starting an art gallery uh, here in town and was traveling to New York to um, uh, meet artists and, and develop his a uh, group of artists that would work with this, and I got to go tag along on a bunch of those uh, journeys and started to collect art and meet artists. And I, I became uh, really fascinated with the creative process and understanding that and dialoguing with people that are actually doing creative work and um, really became very special to me. And one form of creativity seems to inform another. Uh, and so seeing an, an artist's studio is really cool. Seeing the work that they do, understanding the process, the thought process, and what, what the inputs were to get them to that point. So I think I bring that, that real creative bent to um, any of the projects that we, we do, whether it uh, I, I think a creative overlay for business is, is very good and I feel you know, very uh, fortunate to approach business in uh, creative fashion. Mm -hmm. But then certainly if you're in the wine business or you're developing a vineyard and the site to have a creative overlay I think is uh, some of the special sauce to that. Mm -hmm. So then, um, you know, get out of school and um, traveling some to uh, look at art in New York, and then uh, a buddy of mine says, hey, I'm going to, Italian roots, I want to I go experience Italy, and I'm going to uh, rent a house in the hills above Siena, and I'm going to go for a season, and would you like to go, and we're just going to kick around and, and experience Italy, and, and I said, well, yeah, okay, I'm in, right? So we went and did that, and it turns out that the people that owned the house, the man was a banker, and his son was involved with one of the wine consortiums. And so they essentially got us backstage passes at all of these uh, wineries and vineyards that were in the hills around Siena, and uh, these great restaurants that were there. And so, you know, if I was really very, um, leaning towards wine and leaning towards vineyard. And then, you know, once I came back from Italy, it was just, I, I it was just something that I felt like I had to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so then you come forward a little bit uh, further and um, the distribution business had always been uh, really compelling to me. And we, we looked hard at vineyard property here in the Valley and I just could never uh, find a site that I really uh, was excited about and you know the distribution business was still there and I I, uh, that, I had this affinity with that lower east side of Portland 
and ended up finding an old building down there. I, I, when we were going to New York, there were all these great old buildings that people had made these lofts in and they had these big studios. You know, we were kicking around Soho when it was still really gritty and artists and you know, now it's Louis Vuitton stores, right? But um, really, really special experiences to go to artist lofts in, in Soho and just became captivated with those old buildings. Um, so found, found this, uh, same time I was looking at vineyard property, I was looking at old buildings in the Central East Side and the building went out. I ended up finding a building and it just seemed so well suited for the distribution business. You know, that had been in my, in my mind since I was literally a child. And so in 2005, we started the Mitchell Wine Group and uh, both as an importer and also as a distributor. And that was really a terrific, has been a terrific experience. And uh, also I'm, I'm really, I love a good collaboration. I love building a team. I love empowering others to have the experience. And um, you know, the, the general manager of the wine group, Edwin Martinez is a, is a terrific person. Spent his whole adult career in the wine business. He and I are really aligned on our vision and the opportunity, and and we saw that um, that there was really a need for additional independent distribution. You know, we've got the, we've got the big multi-state uh, businesses that are aligned with the um, publicly traded portfolios, and so they're so focused on that portion of their business that it's really difficult for them to give the attention to the small independent. Uh, family-owned uh, uh, labels and so we thought gosh we, we can do that we can tell the story and we can give them good service and 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 on the on the customer interface side because those big businesses it's really difficult for them also to give that individualized customer service that we could see the need for uh, so we spawned the wine group and um, that has been uh, a terrific project that we've got. Uh, we have good success and good momentum. But the other thing that it did for me, it was, it was like plugging me into an encyclopedia of wine knowledge, because they were all, uh, all, everybody we hired down there was just living it, and you know, adult professionals working in the wine industry. And so the information that I really craved about all of the wine regions of the world and the different styles of wine and the different blends and you know what what those historic properties were that were really successful and what their story was it just there was no way that i could capture all that information as uh, as rapidly and as thoroughly as we did with the with through the wine group and developing the portfolio there. And developing the portfolio is a really rewarding experience and interfacing with winemakers and uh, bringing their product to market and helping them is a, is a terrific, terrific thing. So then the vineyard never left me, right? And so we start, the, we start the distribution and the import business and we're chugging along and you know I get to the point with uh, my primary business, Mitchell Lewis, where I feel like that I've got some additional capacity. And I think that, you know, to really do a vineyard, it's a commitment. You, you've got to really have your wits about you. And uh, it's not something that you're gonna just jump into 
uh, on a casual basis, or I'm not. I want to. I want to get in and be thoughtful about it and make good decisions and and uh, you know have the best shot at su at success. So we started looking at vineyard property again, and of course I looked here in the valley, and the story is just being told so well in the valley. There's so many terrific properties and beautiful facilities and great wines that. Um, you know, it, it just, we're, I'm probably more of a, an, ex, an experimental. I, I'm drawn that way. I want to be, you know, I really admire the old stories about, you know, the first people that, that planted Pinot here. And that, that process of experimentation to me is also very interesting. Mm -hmm. So we started looking at other areas and said, well, wh where else could we go? We'd done a big irrigation project up in Walla Walla through Mitchell Lewis. And, uh, went back up there and kicked around and looked, and Red Mountain was some place that had come on my radar scope clear back in the 70s through work. I started hearing about vineyards that were that were being planted on Red Mountain, so went and looked there, and and um, you know could still again didn't find anything that really uh, bit me. Um, but on those trips, you know, we're driving up the gorge, right? And so, uh, you know, I start to really look at the gorge and understand that. And it's really interesting because in, in a fairly short distance, you go from the cool climate varietals to the warm season varietals. And that diversity of the warm season varietals, once I really started to grasp that, that just, be, it, it, was, it was super compelling. Right, so we took the. Um, I started kicking around up in the downs. I started driving around up in the hills and, and looking at property and um, took the climatological data from the downs and laid it over these uh, great wine growing regions that we'd learned about through the wine group and south of France and uh, Bordeaux and uh, Italy and Spain and. Um, you know, you could, you could see that there was just the opportunity to uh, ripen a, a huge uh, group of varietals. So, you know, we ended up finding a piece of property up there in 2017, and we're, we're able to acquire that. And, you know, the big issue is water, and I'm in the water business, and so we wanted to be really in compliance there and getting water rights transferred. and. Uh, we were able to we were able to get all that done, which is um, you look back at something you've done and you realize, geez, that was that was actually quite a project. And then we had to bring the water infrastructure into the site. There was a well there, but there was no buried main lines, and uh, so that ended up being quite a project. Well, then we um, immediately we went looking for a viticulturist that could help develop the project and through the OSU Extension Service. They referred me to Joe Cushman. And Joe uh, grew up in the gorge and has a degree in viticulture from OSU and is from a winemaking family. And like Edwin, he is just a terrific guy and knows so much and is so well connected and really is just um, a, a fabulous individual and super knowledgeable. So sat down with Joe and started talking about the opportunity there and we had this site and uh, would he be interested in joining our team and really helping develop the property. So he took that concept, uh, he and Edwin, because Edwin knew wines of the world and he knew uh, really well, much better, much, much better than I do. And uh, Joe knows um, soils and climates and 
uh, all of that and knew what could ripen. And so they took the, the task and really looked at all of the varietals that we could potentially plant. And, you know, Edwin with his market knowledge and wine region knowledge and the blends and all of that, because we're also intent about not only growing the uh, main constituent of a blend, but growing the, um, the additional, the blending grapes. Um, so we started with quite a list, right? And we ended up whittling it down and whittling it down, and we, we landed with 18 varietals. We have 18 different varietals planted at Three Mile in the Dalles, and uh, we're, you know, that, that seems crazy, but what that does for us is um, there's all these terrific wineries that are here in the valley, and they have the points of distribution all over the United States. And Oregon is a, a hot uh, category. So if they want to experiment with another varietal, they can, they can do that and they can push it out through their distribution or they can make a limited run and they can run it through their wine club or through their tasting house. And uh, you know it, it gives them additional something to experiment with, something to be creative with. Uh, the fruits from Oregon so they can label it as, as Oregon and hit those categories. And you know, there were initially there were some people that were um, about the Dallas, there were certainly people that uh, questioned that decision. Oh geez, it's so far out there and it's the Dallas and what's going on? But then we started to get some traction with people that uh, could see the opportunity. And um, that became uh, productive. And we're now, um, we're, we'll be in our second year harvest this year, and we'll have about 120 tons. When we're uh, fully developed, we'll be 300 tons uh, plus. And all of, that, all of that second year fruit is sold. And we've got people that want more. So, um, you know, the, the hypothesis has proved out, and, and that's, a, that's a great thing. Uh, so it's, it's really, you know, all those building blocks for me, it's, it's a, this love of agriculture. And it is my science background. And it's collaborating with people. And it is uh, and empowering them. And, um, and it's a creative process. And those things all really, for me, are super compelling. Because why would you say something? Geez, I'm 65 years old. Why would you be developing a vineyard at, at 65, right? Um, but it's, uh, it will live on. And, and that's a cool thing, to be able to be part of the development of something that, that actually has a, a life and will continue on into the future is a, is a cool thing. So many questions I have after all of that. Let's let's back up a little bit to the let's let's start with the with the Mitchell Wine Group. Um, you talked about kind of seeing an opportunity uh, for more smaller independent brands that needed needed help distributing. And, and so tell me about as you were getting that started, what were you looking for for who you wanted to represent, who you wanted to import, and tell me about building those relationships and, and getting kind of getting started with the Mitchell Wine Group. Sure, you know our. Our goal was to develop a portfolio of products from the entire world, right? So that all of the major wine growing regions would be represented. If you're going to go uh, into a solid account, whether it be grocery or whether it be uh, on-premise restaurants, 
you know, they want to see a solid book mm -hmm. and good choices. And Portland is so eclectic. There's such an opportunity to bring to market these uh, smaller uh, production products. And the big name brands, if you, if you go back, you know, people my age, baby boomers, we all grew up, we, we gravitated towards one product and they bought it and they bought it and they bought it. And you look at millennials and Gen X and that's not their process. They're experimenting with a lot of different things and they want to see uh, not just the old historic brand, but they want to see the new up and coming things. And so we, we could see that, we knew that was the trend. And so it gives us the chance to uh, develop partnerships with uh, wineries from all over the world that are uh, either historic, that are not the large enough brands that would be represented by the, the big houses, uh, or they're up and comers. There's a, there's a lot of great people that have entered into the winemaking field over the course of the last, you know, 10 years. It'd be, it'd be really interesting to know how many new winemakers, because what's, you know the population of, of wineries here in the Valley, I mean, it went, it's just exponential, right? What is there, eight, hundreds? 600 maybe? Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, all those people need help with distributing their product and, to pick through there and find the ones that we have a kinship with and that we like the wines that they're producing and the style and developing those relationships and helping them bring their product to market. The distribution business is uh, kind of like a bookstore. You think how many books are actually produced and somebody's gotta make a decision, well, which of these are we gonna try and run through the store? and introduced to our clients. And, and that's a lot of what we do is we edit. There, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of product available. Somebody told me that uh, with separate uh, producers and varietals and, and vintages, there might be 80,000 different products that are available domestically. So you know, our book is 3,000 SKUs. How do you choose 3,000 out of 80,000? And then be able to take those to, to market. So it's just, um, it's a lot of fun in a lot of ways. Developing a portfolio is really cool. Building the team is something that's very special to me. Collaborating with them, learning from them is uh, also really rewarding for me. So it's been a, it's been a great experience. You use the word kinship. I like that word. Kin kinship when you're looking for who to represent. What does that has as that's evolved? What does that mean to you? What what is the kinship that you are hoping to to find in a, in a in a partner? Yeah, um, you know, at the uh, I've because of my work, I've studied the foundational elements of a of a healthy relationship. We we study culture. Uh, at work, we have uh, core values. I have personal core values. And um, what I found is that if you can, if you're fair and honest, then you have the opportunity to build trust and respect. And if you can achieve those things, then you can actually have a meaningful 
dialogue with somebody. If there's not trust and there's not respect, then it's transactional, right? And we all have transactional relationships that we have to navigate through, but it's certainly um, my preference is to have relationships, business relationships, personal relationships that are built on a foundation of honesty and fairness and trust and respect. Those are my cornerstones. So as that's reflected in, in the brands, are there certain stories you're excited to tell? Are there certain types of wineries, farming practices, wine styles that you're really excited to, to kind of enter into a partnership with? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's certainly a bunch of different interesting elements there. And uh, we're drawn to originality and authenticity. Uh, and people that are really passionate about what they do. Um, you know, there's, there's people that are in things for a lifestyle play and, uh, or as a, as a financial move. And we're probably most drawn to the people that uh, it is a creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. we, we partner well with those people. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're not focused entirely on the, on the Oregon wine industry itself, um, but I'm curious, as you started the brand in 2005, what, did your, what were your kind of perceptions of Oregon wine and, of the, and, of, and as you were looking for people to represent, did you find a lot of people here that you were excited about? Yeah, um, you know, they're just an amazing uh, uh, crop of winemakers and vineyards and, you know, it's world renowned, right? So there's no shortage of uh, great stories and great properties and, and all of that. It's finding people that uh, on, the, on the Oregon level that um, actually want to be represented in Oregon. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, the way it's sliced now is a lot of people are just selling everything through a tasting a facility and maybe they make two three thousand cases and they're able to move all that through uh, their tasting room and so they don't really need distribution and then you get to the point where you actually do need distribution and then how many states are you in or what what can you bring to me well one of the um, hurdles that we've faced is you get to those bigger brands and they don't just want Portland, they want Seattle, and they want Spokane, and they want Boise, they want a, a region. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's a threshold there. We're, we're effective with somebody that's satisfied with getting good numbers out of Oregon, and we're not currently set up to deliver them Seattle. So you get up to that mm -hmm. uh, brand that is making those kinds of case counts that wants that regional play, and then they're with the multi-state partners. Uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of people that we've talked to that said, God, we'd love to be able to peel off Oregon and give it to you, but uh, it, it potentially hamstrings us in another state. We then get marginalized, and, and Seattle's a much bigger market, and so they're worried about losing uh, momentum in Seattle or in San Francisco or in Denver. So, you know, you, you kind of have to dance through that and find people that, that want solid Oregon representation and also are um, like-minded mm -hmm. 
uh, is, is really, and, but there's plenty of them, right? It's not like there's any shortage of people that uh, we, we could actually, it's one of the um, challenges that we face is, um, you know, how many like local brands can you really have in one house? And there's somebody that uh, fits a certain price point and quality and, and they say, hey, you know, just having us or maybe one other partner is okay, but you don't wanna have five. And so there's, there's other people that we'd love to work with and that I think would like to work with us, uh, but you, you don't want to get yourself spread too thin. You wanna be able to give good service to everybody that you're working with. What about on the other side, as you're looking for partners on the retail side or the restaurant side, where, what are your kind of the, are there certain specialty kind of places you're looking for? Are there, is it a similar kind of relationship build and, and how have you found most kind of most success for the distribution? Yeah, the, um, the restaurant kind of breaks down to two things. You've got these chains and, that have a higher profile steakhouses and they're looking for these marquee brands that the, that the baby boomers, right? You go into, uh, a steakhouse and you look at their wine list and, and I, I don't mean to uh, throw cold water on that but it's pretty predictable uh, what what's there where you go into the independent restaurants that are here locally and it's a completely different wine list it's that eclectic small batch uh, and, and that's really where we were more effective um, because those big brands are with the big distribution houses. So that's the, um, you know, successful here, we're successful at the, at the big houses too, because we bring some Oregon products and, and those things in, but um, they're um, more promoting, you know, these big California cabs of the uh, big names, and, and that's just, it's a, it's a different game. You mentioned a couple of times, kind of one of the one of the things you enjoy most about the business is, is finding and building a team. Tell me about your process for that. Uh, as you're looking for people to add to a team, who, how do you seek out? What are you? What are the kind of the qualities you're looking for? And then once you have people on board, what are your kind of strategies for building and kind of growing the team? Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a whole dissertation. <laughs> um, you know, I started by. Uh, having multiple different profiles done on myself by different consultants so that I could understand really what my skill set was and what my attributes were. And then that also shows you the people that you will partner with well. And to understand that, not just what the functional expertise that they may bring to the table or the domain expertise that they may bring to the table but what do they look like culturally and are we aligned on on that side of the equation because that's the really important piece is that cultural alignment mm -hmm. so um you know we're 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 super picky right we will advertise for people, we network for people, we're on an ongoing basis, we're looking for additional resources for all the businesses. And we have a vigorous screening process that we go through. Again, we're assessing uh, domain expertise that they would bring to the table and whatever the functional area is that they would be working in. Of course, they have to have those skills, but then it's, it's also a cultural fit. 
because uh, if you don't have that, it just ends up being uh, problematic. And we're really uh, based on a foundation there of humility. Um, people succeed in our system that are humble and that just want to do good work and they feel uh, self-actualized in that process. So it's really for us about creating an ecosystem for an individual so that they can bloom and grow and achieve their potential. And some people want to come into the business environment and they, they really just want to be role players, which is great. We, we need a lot of those people. But there's other people that want to be playmakers. And those are, the re those are the ones that I'm really focused on, is people that cultural fit and that can be playmakers. Mm -hmm. And then create that environment, nurture them, so that uh, they can have a chance to work up to their potential. So many people, there's so many talented people out there that have just never been given the right environment and the right opportunity. So it's um, one of the things that's probably most rewarding to me is when we get that right. And you can create an environment and bring somebody in and they have a good experience. And our, we track our, our rate of turnover and uh, compare that to uh, the market so that we know. And we have super low turnover through uh, all the Mitchell companies, single digit. And uh, get a lot of people there. I, it's one of my speeches to people is I want it to be the last job they have. I want them to work there till they don't want to work anymore. So, well, you know, you start talking to somebody that's taking these two and three year assignments and they're building the resume and they're doing that. And that's just so foreign for people. Your last job, what are you talking about? I'm only 35 years old, right? Uh, but it, it's super important. Really good things happen three months, nine months, six months, people come in and they're gonna be successful and they're gonna be impactful and they're gonna do good work. But the really, really cool stuff happens downstream. I mean, if you can keep somebody uh, uh, focused and in it three years, five years, seven years, you really, you really can have some um, interesting uh, work that gets done at that point. So, giving them the long-term opportunity, selling the long-term opportunity, selling the culture, and getting them connected to that, and then uh, crafting an environment that is favorable so that they can back to that trust and respect and that they feel that and they feel appreciated and they feel empowered. Those are real things. We don't just talk that. It's for real, right? Because if it's just talk, that becomes thin. People are, they're out. So it's got to be, it's got to be for reals. You mentioned earlier kind of the importance of creativity to you and your work. And, and as you said, it's not always thought of as, business isn't always thought of as necessarily a creative field. So I'm curious as you've, as you've worked in the business and done a variety of things, how have you been able to find ways to inject creativity into the process? And what are some of maybe your favorite examples of that from, from especially on, on the wine side of things? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the, when they did the profiles on me and a couple of things came out in that that were, that were interesting. Uh, and one is that I have kind of a marketing mindset 
and that that was interesting. That was uh, part of what was compelling about the opportunity in the Dalles is to be able to be part of creating the narrative rather than uh, just jumping in where that's already been really well defined and really well structured. There's a bunch of people up there doing really cool stuff and they've, they've got a, a big lead on us and they're doing great work, but to be able to come in and add additional content to the narrative is, um, is, is really cool. So, you know, that feels like a creative process to me. Um, and then in, in business, the other thing that uh, I, I profile or, or that I, I feel like might be, you know, a, an attribute is being able to see opportunity and then to be able to also see the steps that you need to take to be able to achieve the objectives. There's a great book uh, by Adam Grant called Nonconformists Move the World. I don't know if you, you know that, but you know, as a kid, if you're a nonconformist, you, you get labeled. And um, it, it is, it's tough and until you really realize that that's potentially an attribute, right? And you can leverage that, then uh, that, that was a real uh, epiphany for me as, a, uh, as an adult. Uh, I, I knew that I didn't know everything about business. I knew that I needed to bring additional people in that knew more about certain things that I did. I knew I needed to empower them and to trust them and invest into them. And then, uh, but seeing opportunities is something that I feel like, you know, maybe it's just from being in an environment for such a long time, things become apparent to you, but you know, that's one of the ways that I present when, uh, when I'm profiled. And then also seeing the steps that you need to take uh, to be able to achieve your objectives. And marketing really, at the, at the very root of marketing, it's about creating awareness. And by creating awareness, then you make yourself more accessible. And if you can, that initial awareness is created in a favorable way, a favorable light, then uh, when people get to the point where they want to uh, partner with you, then a lot of the work is done. Again, it, it's, not, it's not transactional. So I think that you know, thinking about that whole envelope, thinking about uh, opportunities and the steps that you need to take to be able to achieve those, and that team building and culture and then how do you present that to the market or to the audience or uh, is it for, for me that's a it's a creative endeavor and uh, there's certainly books that are written about that and you can you know there's all kinds of, of information but it's um, it's organic uh, it's a feeling thing and you, you meet somebody and you feel good energy from them and you can bring them onto the team and you share a vision and you begin to collaborate and you have that experience and you know that that's really very rewarding 
Um, and then I'm, I somehow, I'm able to be informed by these other creative things, the landscaping, the gardens, the art. You know, I'm, I'm the guy that when I go to another city, I go to the art museum and go visit galleries and go visit the botanical gardens and, and go visit the high-end wine retailer to look at what, see what they're doing, right? And uh, look at their products. And when I go to a restaurant, I love looking at the wine list and seeing, you know, what, what are you doing here, right? Um, but that, that information somehow becomes inspiration for me in my business dealings. I, I don't exactly know how that connection works, but I visit with artists and they say, yeah, that's exactly what our process is, is that you know, we go look at things, a, a painter that we've con uh, been able to collect a number of his uh, pieces, and he was commissioned to do a piece down in Nevada for a foundation. And, you know, so they fly him out and give him a rental car and say, go out and drive around, right? <laughs> and he's um, bopping around out in the desert and taking pictures and taking notes and, and then ends up creating these amazing, like 12 foot by 12 foot, uh, multiple panels that went in this uh, foundation. But it was through that gathering of information and then reflection. And then that gets turned into uh, some, some form of creation. And that seems to be the same uh, process that I go through with, with everything, uh, especially the, the businesses and developing businesses. And then you sprinkle in the culture and you know, the people thing and collaboration, and, and there, there you go. So uh, over developing multiple businesses, uh, you've talked a lot about some, some of the parts of it that are very important to you. Is there an underlying philosophy for you, business philosophy for you that you kind of, you, it's kind of a, you mentioned core principles earlier. Is there a core principle business philosophy for you? Sure. Yeah. You may know uh, here a year or so ago, there's a, a group, the business roundtable and the business roundtable for years, these are you know big uh, Fortune 500 companies, and they have put out a statement about the purpose of a corporation. And for years, for decades, the purpose of the corporation had been to make money for the shareholders. And they finally said that the purpose of a corporation is much deeper than that and they identified the other audiences that are in play there. And we've known those for, for years. You know, we want to serve, of course, the customers that we work with. We want to serve the suppliers that we work with. We want to serve the employees that are part of the business. And then the last one is a connection to the community. And I, uh, hear, hear that from me, that you know, post-World War II and that strong sense of community is um, really compelling to me. And I, I want to be uh, that person that we're doing right in society and helping people. Uh, we, we don't make a big uh, deal about it, but we do some philanthropic work and um, it, that, that's a cool thing. Mm -hmm. You know, those are, um, uh, it's, it's great 
to be able to, to do that and to be able to uh, be a good citizen in the community and be able to share the experience. So, you know, philosophically, it's, it's uh, serving all the audiences uh, and doing that in balance and doing that well. And then uh, also having a core set of values and principles that you really are rigid about. I, that was also a, a, a transformational moment for me. I somehow ended up finding the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and started reading about that. And um, one of his concepts, you know, for you to achieve that full self-actualization, it's through this building of a foundation. And one of those building blocks is having uh, a core set of values that you don't compromise on. That compromising on your core values will cause a loss of self-esteem, right? So, you know, I think we've all been in situations where you're around people that were a little sketchy or and you, you weren't really aligned with what they were doing, but you, you continued to go along, and um, I don't do that anymore. You know, I, I, you gotta be prepared to walk away from people that are not healthy for you, and uh, really align yourself with people that you share common values and common principles and uh, treat people uh, similarly. So um, that, that's been uh, really uh, empowering for me to uh, have that filter, have that knowledge, have that understanding, so that you can sense something that is not going to be a healthy interaction for you and be able to steer away from that uh, or not let yourself you know, the risk is that you try and make an emotional, intellectual connection to someone or some group or something that is, is, not, is not healthy. And then you've got that, you've invested into that, and it's, uh, it doesn't come to fruition. And those things are, um, it's a bad use of time. Bad use of time, bad use of energy. So let's talk about the let's talk about three mile a little bit. Um, you mentioned uh, having spent multiple parts of your business life looking for a vineyard site and never quite finding it. So you're finally looking in the Dalles. What about the site finally spoke to you? What made this the place? Yeah. Um, you know, as a kid, I grew up here in the valley, and we would drive out to Bald Peak, and being up. Um, property where you had a view was always really magic to me and we all dreamed about uh, being at some view property and you know when as we it's one of the filters one of the things that you know we've looked at here in the valley was you know would there be a property that also had a lot of character and um, you know when you you get in the hills above the Dalles or at our base we're at about 11 1200 feet and then it goes up to 17, 1800 feet, and I don't know if you've seen any images from the site, but um, it, it's just really a very beautiful piece of property. It's got these terrific views, and 
uh, for just miles and miles. And then we're far enough out that there's not a lot of uh, development and that's really interesting to me. So uh, it was one of those properties that the, um, the first time I walked on it, you know, I, I, uh, somebody else was, was working with somebody else at work that was also looking at properties for me and I asked them to uh, go and check this thing out and he came back and he said, Dave, I think you, I think you need to settle up and go see this place, right? I had found it and but asked him to go do an initial uh, walk and so we met the uh, property owner it was a woman uh and i i told her at the time i said we're gonna make a full price offer this is done right uh it just was so um i just loved it i just loved it i loved the views i loved the slope i loved the soils uh you know i took soil science in school and um so soil is really fascinating to me and you know, we, we got up there just straight away with a small excavator and started digging some pits. Joe, the vineyard manager, uh, did that. And he comes back and he goes, Dave, there's some places where the freaking soil is eight feet deep up here. And we were just like, you know, and you, 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 I don't know, you've studied geology and you know about the Missoula floods and the alluvials. And, but it, it, it's just an incredible um, journey, the development of the soils up there. So. Uh, you know, to have water and to have the, the slope and the aspect towards the sun and the soil and, and the views and, and stuff just was, I, I asked Joe in one of our interviews, I said, if I assigned to you the task of going to the gorge and finding a piece of property that met all of our needs to be able to do this, what about the three mile site uh, is is deficient. Where, where, where are our gaps? And he said, Dave, there are none. It's perfect. <laughs> so, and that, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a viticulturist and there was no reason for him to sugarcoat it with me, right? I wanted the honest information, so that was really uh, good news. Good to hear. So, working with Joe, obviously, on, 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 you mentioned kind of the, the big list of what we could do here and then winnowing, winnowing it down to the 18 varieties you wanted to plant. Um, as you started to develop the vineyard, uh, aside from water obviously being an issue, what, was there anything else that you weren't expecting about developing a vineyard? Were there any other kind of unexpected challenges in it uh, and what were the solutions? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, those old properties that had been in people's families for a long time there was um we actually bought uh several different tax lots as a cluster and so there was a couple old dwellings and people that have been on the site for decades and so i'm i'm uh famous for thinking things can happen quicker and easier than, right? I can see the end and I thought, oh, you just, you know, well, sure, we go out there and put water infrastructure in and clean this site up. And, but I was just shocked at how much debris that was there, that uh, old cars, old farm equipment, old appliances, just from decades of, of and so, that turned out to be quite a project <laughs> to actually just get the site uh, cleaned up was. Um, then the other thing that is, is challenging for everybody everywhere is a labor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a bunch of laborers up there 
that are doing harvest for the tree fruits. But, um, you know, getting people to do trellising and getting people to do plant and install the drip irrigation, and we, we managed all that ourselves. Uh, Joe managed it. So, um, you know, that, that was at some time we had 30 people up there working at one time. So that was a real um, challenge to really get the quality that we wanted and people that knew what we were doing. So, um, but you know, we, we came through that. I think we were successful on that side too. A lot of the uh, people that we bought those supplies from are customers of my primary business, Mitchell Lewis. They're the irrigation contractors in that market that also sell trellising and, and whatever. So it was great that we had those kind of pre-existing relationships. So you're working with somebody that is a known commodity to you. And um, our man that uh, covered that area, Reed Stewart, was also really helpful. He was the guy that was helping me look at properties all over um, Washington and Oregon and knows the dealer community that is in the irrigation business and in the trellising business. And so, you know, we're, we're not uh, foreign resources to, to those people. So that was super helpful. When you were talking about Three Mile earlier, you mentioned some sort of initial skepticism about the Dowels itself uh, and, and the potential for selling the fruit, finding people for it. And obviously that turned out to be uh, not true, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, as you were, as you were sort of planning to come to market and planning to have your first harvest, your first fruit, um, was it, were you sort of seeking out people who wanted to buy your fruit? Were people finding you and where, what were you looking for kind of in, in buyers of, of that fruit? Yeah, we, um, from the start, we made the decision not to be trying to sell the fruit, that what we wanted to do was just really socialize the project with people. Um, if the dynamic is you trying to sell something to somebody, there's constraints to that relationship. Where if we can just socialize the project with people and get them excited about what we're doing and tell our story, and then ultimately, if they want the fruit, they're gonna ask us. And then you've got a much different dynamic than you do if we're, so we identified, uh, we started with all the wineries in Oregon and Washington, and we started to just whittle that down to people that were, we'd love to work with. And that, that was Edwin, Edwin owned that. He knows those relationships and the people at, the wine group know all those people and they say, you know, this would be a good partner, this would be a good partner. And so then we just call, contacted those people and said, hey, we just want to tell you about the project that we're working on and we're developing a vineyard in the Dallas and here's the varietals that we're working with and we'd love to have you come see and we'd love to have your input about what we're doing and what your thoughts are and um, we, we never tried to sell the fruit and, and we're still not. We're still just socializing the project with people. And then those that are interested mm -hmm. have come to us and said, hey, we, we'd like to experiment with the fruit or we, we think you guys are doing a good thing and we're interested. And um, 
that that's worked terrific. And again, you've got a really different relationship with your partner at that point mm -hmm. than uh, if you've gone to them trying to sell them something. And we wanted that. We wanted that. And then the um, additional collateral benefit is our experience with the distribution business. So we're able to provide counsel. You know, even there's people that are buying grapes from us that we're not distributing their wine, right? But it, it, it's a different dialogue than with their distributor partner. And it enables us, positions us, so that we can have a conversation with them about distribution. They may be having a problem in Kansas. And Edwin's able to say, oh, you know, have you tried this? Or have you worked with this person? Or, you know, what's your goals? And, and really provide some uh, thoughtful counsel to people that uh, there's a lot of value. And then the people that we're, we are actually distributing their product, it, it's just taken that communication pipeline and just blown it open and uh, made it really uh, much more um, rich and a lot more detail and a lot more of a partnership than um, if, you're, if it's just a pure buy-sell distribution relationship. We, had, we have great relationships with the, with the producers now, but uh, selling them fruit is just a different deal, right? So that, that's been really cool to watch that bloom. You kind of in, indicated earlier the, the kind of the, the growth of the gorge and the kind of the excitement and enthusiasm around gorge. I'm curious, now that you're invested in it and you're, and you're seeing it on a much closer basis, what are you seeing in the gorge? What does it look like right now as a wine growing region? And, and what do you see as you look ahead for it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not able to really quantify the buzz as well as others, um, but we were interviewed. Someone else uh, contacted me for an interview recently, and we did that a couple weeks ago, I, a blogger. Uh, and he's profiled a bunch of interesting people. There's some crossover with the uh, who, who also on your video archive, but his has a, where you've been more focused here, Oregon, you know, he's interviewing people up in Walla Walla and like I say, Red Mountain and all of that. And um, he, he told me, you know, he says, how did you get this figured out? And that's the, um, he goes, there's a lot of buzz uh, all over about the gorge. And, um, you know, I think the, uh, at the root of that is back to the entrepreneurial spirit. People really admire and respect people that are willing to be the first to try something. And then you think back, I mean, the first people that planted uh, Pinot and Chardonnay here in the valley and, and everything built off of that. And the first people that you know, developed Napa and these, these other regions. So, you know, we believe that the gorge is one of those kinds of opportunities. Uh, we've also been looking at uh, sub-AVAs up there and there's um, a lot of good information. Uh, you know, the old AVAs, when they were drawn, they just have so much more information now they understand the uh, input so much better. So 
You know, I think some of the natural next steps for the gorge is sub-AVAs. Uh, Hood River's cool season, Mosier's in the middle, the Dalles is warm varietals, uh, and then you go a little bit further and you're into a blast furnace, right? So the zone is, it, it's actually fairly small. And, um, and then the, the sub-ABAs uh, can be even smaller. And I think that, uh, and the people that are working with the fruit, and you know, it'll depend on the points of distribution and where those go and how the, the wines have to prove out. Uh, but I, I think there's an opportunity for uh, expansion and new varietals. And um, we had a varietal dialogue yesterday at our vineyard development meeting. And we're, we're fully planted now. We, we don't have any more space to put in anything new. But, you know, we thought when we put 18 in that there may be some that, that might not perform well and we may have to graft over. And so we had that dialogue and, and everybody was, you know, we're not feeling that. We're not thinking that anything uh, needs to be grafted over, but there's other things we'd like to plant, right? Uh, that we think can be uh, uh, potentials. So there's 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 still a lot of potential up there, and it's that it's the new it's new varietals. You know, we're, the the world probably doesn't need more Cabernet and doesn't need more Syrah, even though we're we're growing those and we've had. Winemakers, you know, one of the winemakers that we are partnered with that we really respect. And um, he said that, you know, the Cabernet has grown in too hot of a zone now. And that it needs uh, a little slower ripening and a little cooler. And, you know, we're, like, if you compare our harvest times to Walla Walla, and, you know, the, the big reds that they're pulling off up there, Saran, Cabernet, they're harvesting that at the end of August. And we're probably, you know, clear out at the end of September, early October. Uh, and, and that ripening process, you know, because then the, the temperatures have cooled down. So rather than, uh, you know, being ready for harvest in 24 hours or 48 hours, we might have uh, five or six or seven days where we, we get to that uh, peak uh, so that uh, so we can harvest so that longer hang time uh, is really we think that's going to be attractive. You know, there's a lot of influence here. You're getting you're still getting the marine air coming in, and then you've got the influence of the mountain, and you've got the influence of the of the gorge. And so while we can ripen uh, these warm season varietals, there's still a significant a cooling influence there. So it stretches out the, the growing cycle. One of the things I thought was interesting when you were talking about Three Mile earlier was the idea that it would it would live on. It was something you were starting now that was going to be, that was going to exist for, for the foreseeable future. So tell me about it as a kind of a legacy project for you. What what about that ex excites you and, and what are your kind of, what do you kind of hope it, it looks like? What do you kind of hope it becomes? Yeah. The, um, uh, as we've been building the teams, we've really tried to add individuals that are much younger than I am. You know, we did a demographic survey of all the people that work for the companies, and baby boomers like myself now is really just a handful. 
And the majority of our population is either millennial or Gen X. So the thought that, you know, we're, and we've been really, as I said, very picky about adding those resources. So I'm hopeful that there will be uh, individuals that will be managing that property uh, long after I'm gone and that they will be able to have a good experience with that, that it will be rewarding for them and, and uh, they'll be able to make a connection with the site. And you, know, you, you get early indications of what the fruit's gonna be like, but uh, you know, vineyards, lots of times, it's quite a few years down the road or decades mm -hmm. uh, before it really presents itself. And so, um, while I don't plan on going anywhere very quickly, I want to stick to it, right? Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that I get to see uh, some of that longer-term development. But then, um, you know, to have it be, have that region be well thought of and have Three Mile be well thought of so that, um, you know, if I'm a wine buyer in um, Chicago or New York, for my restaurant and there's influencers that I'm, wine writers that I'm reading about. Uh, both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have recently done big articles about the Columbia River Gorge, full page. So how did that happen? <laughs> what, what were they, what, what's feeding them? Um, so, you know, if, if we could get to the point where uh, a wine buyer in New York was saying, hey, I want wines from the Gorge. I read the article in the Times and I want some products and who's got that? And so that they would hit uh, lists at some of these, uh, you know, more iconic uh, restaurants in these major cities. And that the AVA, as important as, as Three Mile being recognized, it's the AVA. It's getting that to the point where it has uh, potentially some some cachet, and so I don't, you know, I don't need to. Uh, that that may be I'm, I might not be around for that, um, but it's cool to be in on the foundation, uh, the development of that, and know that at some point in time maybe the pick and shovel work that we did uh, will go to creating one of the next highly thought of ABAs in the world of wine. Mm -hmm. That's compelling. So as you look ahead for your, start with yourself, uh, you mentioned uh, obviously this, this kind of new project. What else is on the horizon for you, uh, both uh, business-wise, uh, personal-wise? What are you kind of looking ahead to? Do you have more development plans and, and what's next? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've, uh, there's never a shortage of opportunities and things that are attractive to you. you know, our primary business, Mitchell Lewis, is, is really uh, doing very well right now, and there's a lot of opportunity for that business, and so I'm, I'm still very connected to that and uh, really having a good time building the team there and, and developing those opportunities. On the wine side, we still believe that there are, when we named it Mitchell Wine Group, there was a reason for that. Uh, you know, part of it is the distribution and the vineyard, 
but we see the opportunity and we'll plan the site as though a winery might get built there. I don't know that we will ever get a chance to do that, but um, wouldn't that be terrific if we, if we could? And so we should plan the site now. There's other aspects of the wine business. You know, we're, we're aspirational to be one of these regional players. We'd love to be uh, in Seattle and, uh, you know, if you could pick off Spokane and Boise and you, you could be a regional player, that would be uh, terrific. There, there's other uh, things that we see, logistics, you know, there's these logistics companies that are very uh, successful and we're, we've already got a distribution system. So, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for a logistics play. Uh, just the storage uh, business is, you know, there, there's um, an opportunity there and we're growing out of our current warehouse so we're going to move to a new, bigger, high-cube facility. So we've got that old space, and so we might be able to use it as a, an incubator in some way for um, some other aspect of the, of the wine business, whether it's storage or um, uh, logistics or uh, whatever. But um, you, also, you, know, you, you want to do well at what's on your plate. And we all have plenty on our plate right now. So um, I don't want to be continuing to add projects until we really have a great command of what we're currently working on. And um, so we're, we're growing into what, what we're currently doing. Obviously, mentioned a lot on your a lot on your plate right now. Everybody's had a lot on their plate the last the last couple of years. Uh, I'm curious, uh, from your perspective as business owner, business uh, developer, uh, tell me about the impacts of the past couple of years on on your work and on your uh, kind of on your team. How have you adjusted, and how have you kind of gotten through the past couple of, of years? Yeah, um, you know, we were uh, fortunate both Mitchell Lewis and the wine group were essential services. And so those businesses did not stop. They continued to operate. And we, um, you know, we made the decision early on that um, they were, while there may be long-term implications, to the pandemic that we couldn't apply short-term thinking to the situation. So on our primary business, Mitchell Lewis, we have a long inventory pipeline and acquisition of inventory is a, um, you know, it's a significant process. So we, we bulked up on inventory. We went the opposite direction of what others were doing. And we did the same thing at the wine group. Uh, it started really with the tariffs mm -hmm. on wine. Mm -hmm. And the guys came to me and they said, you know, there's all these tariffs on wine and you know, we're scared to buy because we're worried we're gonna have this product that we're gonna be upside down uh, and you know, we're on price. And we made the decision to not think short-term, to think long-term that the tariffs would, uh, they'd either get rationalized or they'd sunset or whatever. So we bought. And then the COVID hit and others dialed back their, their buying and we bought again. And so we had a whole lot of product. And then 
as demand changed. You know, restaurants shut down, but people didn't quit drinking. So it all went to, went to retail, right? So our retail, everything we lost in on-premise, we gained in retail. And then, uh, and actually surpassed that. Retail also grew as a category and offset everything we lost through on-premise. And part of that was just having inventory. Uh, and we, we've kept buying and so that we've got ample supplies. So it's, um, you know, on the business side, we navigated through all of that fairly well. Uh, there wasn't, wasn't like it was a perfect situation. I mean, we've, we've had some struggles with all of that, but we've, we've actually come out of it in pretty good shape. So I feel, feel good about that. Uh, but the lessons we learned more as uh, individuals about um, you know working together and trying to accommodate people. There were people that were fearful to come to work, and we dealt with that. And so we we um, pretty quickly became more flexible, and that was a good thing. And um, then when it was opportune to be able to come back together, we were able to do that fairly quickly as well. So just a lot of good life lessons in there. And um, we feel good about the way that we navigated through, uh, both on personal and on business. And we feel good about the, the shape that the businesses are in uh, coming out of, the, out of the pandemic. And then the supply chain thing is the you know, similar, same kind of mess. Uh, you know, products that we used to get on the Mitchell Lewis side in a matter of weeks, that turned into months. And you know the container story. I mean, we've had containers that, you know, so you, you plan something with one of the big retailers and, you know, they'd want to put it on ad on a certain month and we're like, well, the wine's not here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, end, it ends up moving it. Right, once you finally get it, then it does go on ad or some of those things get, get canceled. So it just, um, we've had to be more flexible is I think the big, um, the big lesson for us. You mentioned earlier when you're talking about kind of why wine, you mentioned that it was something that was kind of from early in life, you know, ag agriculture and it, kind of, and it kind of grew. So I'm curious, my last question here for you, as you look back, what about wine still today is exciting to you? Yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think the opportunity to jump into a space and be able to carve out a niche and do good work that people appreciate and get that respect and trust, both from the team from the audiences, from the community. Uh, that's what's been special for me. And then wine is such a unique product, right? It's, it's all, it's culture, it's history, it's architecture, it's art, it's, it's this encompassing, you know, back to the lifelong pursuits. I'm, I like lifelong pursuits. And wine is, you know, we're constantly researching and learning and growing and so, to have the opportunity for that long-term growth and learning 
at the same time doing something that's creative and that uh, has these other elements that are really very inspirational for me, the team building and the science and business and creativity and all that. It, it's been a win-win. I, I really feel fortunate that I was able to uh, participate in the wine business. I feel really fortunate. If I had to go back and make the decision again, I would absolutely do it. And looking forward, it just continues to be more and more rewarding. You know, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of what we've done. The, um, we did, the, again, the vineyard development meeting yesterday, and I'm not having all the interaction with the winemakers. And I, there's all of that that's really going on through Edwin and through Joe, and that they're just jacked about the project. <laughs> they go, Dave, we can't explain to you how much fun this is and how excited that we are and how excited that others are. So, you know, I'm, I'm living vicariously through others, and I, and I get a lot of uh, kick out of that. Right, so the questions that I have for you, uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? No, I, I, I think this was great. Jeez, we went an hour and a half, oh my God. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good. And again, thank you. And I think you do a good job at this, so good job to you. <laughs> Good job to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's been I'm, a lot of lot of practice. Well, I, I, you know, I've had to interface, interface with my sheriff people over the over time, and uh, there's certainly people that have, kind of have a gift for something, and so uh, good for you. Make sure that's rolling. Okay. And and also, <laughs> you know, what, whoever the powers to be are behind uh, the Linfield program and the video archive, you be sure and give them a shout out. Thank you. Make sure they hear that. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and welcoming us into your beautiful space, telling us your story, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.